downtown. The express lanes are busy from Lake City Way to the Ship Canal Bridge. Southbound 405 at 124th. Watch for a dog that's roaming around in the roadway there. And a northbound 5 Ship Canal Bridge looks like that stalled vehicle cleared out of the way. I'm Bonnie Brown for KUOW. Thanks, Bonnie. Traffic made possible in part by Horizon Air. Currently, we have partly cloudy skies at 55 degrees. We're looking for clouds to move in throughout the day today. Showers likely this afternoon. Heading for highs in the mid-60s. It's 9 o'clock. This summer, for the first time ever, a squealing orphan orca was captured and reunited with its pod. Okay, we got to slide that around her pack. We had a good feel about her. We knew that we'd manipulated her to the point where we could get the soft tail line on her. Jeff Foster is the man that roped the frazzled whale named Springer in the waters of Puget Sound, the same waters where orcas were once collected for aquariums. Well, we've kind of come full circle, and it's, it's been interesting. We've learned a tremendous amount about these animals in the last 30 years, and 30 years ago it was acceptable to collect these animals for the captive industry, and, and now it's not. This hour, we'll explore that change of heart. Okay, let's hold her here and let's position her. It's a story of adventure and redemption. I'm Kathy Duchamp. Come meet the men and women of this orca odyssey right after the news on KUOW and Northwest Public Radio. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Ann Bozell. Secretary of State Colin Powell says he'll continue to press ahead with a U.N. Security Council resolution demanding that Iraq disarm. He says if Iraq is serious about admitting U.N. inspectors, it'll be happy to have a resolution spelling out Security Council expectations. Iraq announced yesterday that it will admit U.N. inspectors without conditions. The Arab world has reacted to that move with relief, as the BBC's Abba Shali reports. Jordan welcomed what it described as Iraq's wise decision, while the Syrian foreign minister said Baghdad had demonstrated enough flexibility to avoid a military confrontation. An Egyptian official spokesman told the BBC the Iraqi move was in line with Egypt's policy, which calls for the respect of Security Council resolutions. Leaders across the Arab world will have breathed a collective sigh of relief. They've been privately and publicly urging Iraq to allow the return of the weapons inspectors in order to avoid war. The UN says the Arab League Secretary-General Amr Musa played a key role in convincing Iraq to readmit the inspectors. The BBC's Abishali. An FBI special agent says it's thought two more members of a suspected al-Qaeda cell in New York State are still at large in Yemen. Special Agent Peter Ahern told NBC's Today Show the two attended lectures by a religious group in western New York with six men who have already been arrested. Ahern says it's believed the men were recruited by al-Qaeda on a religious trip overseas. We have a situation here that uh, we believed is uh, similar to the situation that we found with John Walker Lind. These individuals uh, traveling overseas for uh, purposes of religious studies uh, and then for uh, one reason or another end up in a terrorist training camp uh, outside of uh, Kandahar, Afghanistan. The men arrested last week are American citizens of Yemeni descent. A federal appeals court in Philadelphia hears arguments today about whether immigration hearings for detainees in the September 11th terrorism investigation can be held in secret. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports. Shortly after last year's attacks, the Justice Department ordered the hearings closed, citing national security concerns. The mandate has affected hundreds of detained immigrants, many of whom have since been ordered deported in secret. Newspapers and civil liberties groups in New Jersey sued, and a federal judge agreed they had a right to attend the hearings. 
The Supreme Court granted a stay, meaning detainee hearings remain closed pending a ruling by the appeals court in Philadelphia. Last month, the Justice Department lost a similar case before another appeals court in Cincinnati. There, a three-judge panel wrote that democracies die behind closed doors. Regardless of the outcome of today's arguments, many believe this issue will ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. The Dow is down 66 points this hour. The Nasdaq's off a fraction. This is NPR. 94.9 KUOW News and Information. I'm Deborah Brandt. Cairo Television investigators discovered that Boeing has alternative plans to turn its Renton property into a housing and retail development. Boeing says the plans developed in the spring of this year are just one long-range possibility. The company maintains it is committed to building planes at Renton for the foreseeable future. Weyerhaeuser has agreed to drastically reduce timber harvest levels in the Queen Charlotte Islands of British Columbia. The company is following a Canadian court order that it consult and accommodate Haida Indians. Watch for dead crows and other birds. Reduce standing water. Wear long sleeves. Those are some of the pieces of advice King County health officials are giving the public to prepare for the West Nile virus. It has been detect- has not yet been detected in Washington state, but health officials say the mosquitoes are on their way. A juvenile justice survey found that fewer teens were arrested last year in Washington than in any year since 1982. Last year, fewer than 44,000 people, 17 and under, were arrested as crime rates declined. The survey was conducted by the Governor's Juvenile Justice Advisory Committee. Last night's Mariners game lasted more than four and a half hours. The M's finally won it. Well, they walked away with the win, a 6-5 to win over Texas when Ichiro scored on a bases-loaded walk. The Mariners try for a third straight win as they play the Rangers again tonight in Seattle. Mostly cloudy with a chance of morning showers. Some afternoon sun breaks, partly cloudy with a chance of showers tonight, partly cloudy tomorrow. The high today, 66. It is partly sunny already and 54 degrees in Seattle at 94.9 KUOW News and Information. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations, the Annenberg Foundation, and Rockefeller Brothers Fund on the web at rbf.org. Welcome back to Orca Odyssey. I'm Kathy Ducham. Most children have dreams. Maybe it's to see a unicorn or to fly to the moon. Ted Griffin had a dream. A child growing up in Tacoma, Washington in the 1940s, Griffin wanted to ride on the back of a killer whale. In my mind, the neatest thing in the world would be to be on the back of a whale that would go where I wanted to in the sea. I wanted a seahorse. I wanted to be able to ride a horse in the sea. And I got to admit, there's enough showman in me that I would like other people to see what I was doing. Most people never realize their childhood dream, but Ted Griffin did it. In 1965, he became the first person to ride a whale in captivity, forever changing our relationship with the orca. When you are looked at by a whale, you're thunderstruck, changed for life. You've been identified, the whale knows who you are, and you are a changed person. At 67, Griffin now spends his time raising exotic fish at his home in Bellevue, Washington. A benign hobby for a man who won fame taming a wild whale. 
and lost that fame when the public turned on him. There's maybe a dozen varieties in here, including an eight or nine inch black shark, who's just a loach and doesn't really chew anybody. Flanked by two fish tanks, Griffin sits at his dining room table and recounts his orca adventure. The quest started when Griffin opened the Seattle Aquarium during the 1962 World's Fair. To bring people to the door, he needed a big animal. What better than a killer whale, the most feared creature of the sea? But how do you catch one? No one had ever done it. Griffin's first idea? Jump out of a boat and wrap a rope around the whale's tail. The few times that I tried, I couldn't get within 100 yards of the whale. The boat's... Every time I'd move to the whale, the whales would move away. So I thought, the helicopter. I'll jump out of a helicopter. That way, I'll get it. Well, whales are also very smart about helicopters. And when you're over a whale with a helicopter, they're not underneath you. They're somewhere else. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do? And about that time, I got the call. The call was from a couple Canadian fishermen who accidentally caught an orca in their fishing nets in a remote bay off the coast of northern British Columbia. When they called, I struck a bargain right then and there. I said, okay, guys, I will give you 5000 cash for the whale, and I will give you $1,000 for each of the three nets. That's 8000 And they said, okay, but we can't keep the whale, and we have to go fishing. You have to come up right away. Namu, after the cannery town where it was captured. On a sunny day in July 1965, the four-ton male orca was escorted by tugboat into Seattle's Elliott Bay. A somersaulting Namu was greeted by a throng of curious people, lined up outside Griffin's Aquarium to see the nation's first captive orca. I immediately became a merchant. We raised the ticket price from 75 cents or a dollar to a dollar and a half, and the ticket takers told me that all they were getting were two dollar bills and they didn't have any coin to give and change, and people were so anxious to see the whale, they were giving the two dollars and not asking for change. Gotta kill a whale I remember trying to count the money and it just got to the point where, you know, you couldn't even keep up with it. The money was coming in so fast. And within days of Namu's arrival to Seattle, a movie deal was in the works. It was then that Griffin finally realized his boyhood dream, to ride on the back of a killer whale. I started brushing him as usual, and then I started kind of leaning over his back behind the dorsal fin, and I was hanging on to him. And he was just fine, just perfectly fine. And then I actually, when he was just a little bit underwater, his, his back was maybe a foot, foot and a half below water, I sort of swung a leg over and I hung onto the dorsal fin and I sat there and he was just fine. And about a second later, he dropped his head and threw me in the air. He absolutely bucked me off. I, I was never so scared, ever, because what I had thought was going to be a wonderful, harmonious relationship, the whale had rejected me, and that hurt. But 
He circled around, came right up and had his nose up against my tummy within about 10 seconds. And so I thought I'll do it again. And this time he bucked again, but not quite so much. And within a day I was hanging on to him. And the world was hanging on to Griffin, shocked and amazed at the bond between man and beast. Former Washington Secretary of State Ralph Monroe recalls hearing about Griffin's early rides. I was up at college at Bellingham at Western, and my dad wrote me a letter and he said that, uh, that, that there was a trainer in the water with the whale, and, and I couldn't believe it. And then he wrote me a letter about two weeks later, and he said that the man is on the whale, he's riding the whale. And none of us could believe it. I mean, we were dumbstruck because we thought these animals would kill you if they got close to you. I knew that I had this relationship. The result was enormously rewarding. I felt extremely excited, exhilarated, and I never wanted it to end. But it did end. Eleven months after Namu was captured, he died. It was probably the saddest day of my life, including the passing of my father. Namu drowned in his pen at the Seattle Aquarium. An autopsy revealed a massive bacterial infection. People suggested Griffin find a replacement. Emotionally, he couldn't do it. But Griffin's career with orcas did not end. He started capturing whales for other aquariums. I said to myself, I will be a businessman. I will do this. I will distance myself from the emotional entanglement with a whale, all of the difficult feelings that I had. I will wave the dollar sign, and that'll be my standard. And not only was it good money, Griffin says capturing whales was fun. I mean, we're flying in helicopters, we're flying in float planes, we got sea boats that you know, running up and down Puget Sound at 70 miles an hour with great big motors. And, uh, and the whole world is calling on me. Griffin says he got calls from Russia and was invited to the Pentagon to lecture on killer whale acoustics. But public attitudes were changing. By 1970, Griffin had gone from hero to villain. The attitudes that changed went way beyond anything I could imagine. For example, I believe that people would look at whales and see them as a beautiful part of Puget Sound, but also in captivity. Gee, if you could get close to a whale, you could get on the back of Shamu at SeaWorld, wouldn't that be great? And they do it today. But a lot of people didn't think that was a good idea. And suddenly, more and more people started ganging up on me, if you will, and on this whole thing. People were out to get me, if you will. They would call me on the phone. They would tell me they're going to shoot me. They're going to steal my children. They're going to shoot them. They're going to burn my house down. They're doing all these kinds of things, telling me I must stop what I'm doing. Griffin continued. In 1970, he and partner Don Goldsberry orchestrated the biggest orca roundup ever. More than 80 whales were netted in Penn Cove off Whidbey Island, Washington. Griffin says he selected a few whales to export and held them overnight. But something was wrong with the net. The whales got tangled. Now the adult whales 
large ones with good echolocation and good smarts, were all able to avoid the drifting tongue of the net. The calves could not. Four calves drowned in the net. They were dead when we got to them. Instead of telling state game wardens what happened, Griffin's crew put anchors around the dead whales. They sunk to the bottom of the cove. A few months later, a fisherman found the carcasses. The public became enraged beyond anything you can imagine. And I knew when that began to happen that our days were numbered, that the state of Washington or others would be forced to take action against us because the public outcry was so great. Griffin retired from the whale business two years later. He sold the aquarium as well. Waving the dollar sign, he says, didn't work for him. Griffin dropped out of sight, changed his name, and worked as a day laborer. But the capture era didn't end with Ted Griffin. In fact, others went on to perfect the craft. One of those was Jeff Foster, who worked under contract for SeaWorld. Foster boasts that no whales died under his watch. Watch the animals a lot. We would try to drive them into a shallow area in the bay and then net them off and then select the animals that we felt were good candidates for captivity. And, and the last animals that were caught were transient animals and those were caught in 1976 uh, in Bud Inlet. Bud Inlet sits at the southern end of Puget Sound. The capture was an extraordinary moment that forever changed attitudes about orcas. Jeff Foster was on the chase boat. Ralph Monroe then an aide to Washington Governor Dan Evans, was also on the water that day. Both men recount the event with very different reactions to what happened. Well, this is Olympia Harbor. This is where the, uh, the last whale capture in America took place uh, in 1976. Well, it was, a, it was a beautiful day, and, and uh, it was uh, early in the year, and, and we had, uh, were right underneath the Capitol, and it was a sunny Sunday afternoon, and there was a lot of boaters out on the water. We'd all been out the night before at, the, at a dance together, and, and uh, we were dying to go out and do something in the, in the fresh air the next day. And while we were sailing right here in the harbor, not very far out, we noticed a pod of whales, which is pretty unusual. And the whales were not swimming naturally. They, they were being chased. drove the animals into the back of the bay and uh, set the nets on them and, and uh, there was a couple animals in there that looked like they would be about the right size. We were hearing frantic calls, much like you hear in the whale recordings, but there were no soft music in the background and, and there was uh, nothing romantic about it. It was, it was frantic. And the, you know, the whales were thrashing, they were spy hopping, they were trying to look for each other, they were trying to look over the net. They were trying to see where the rest of the pod was, who was inside, who was outside. And we were just pleased to, you know, collect the animals humanely and we felt. And to us, it was, you know, we were just doing our jobs and, and trying to do it as well as we could. Well, we came to shore and we were really frustrated. We didn't know who to call. It was a Sunday night. And we finally got a hold of a reporter named Mike Layton. And Mike was having dinner with his mother. He worked for the Seattle PI and he was very angry at us for disturbing him. But after we made our case, he said, okay, I'll go over and take a look. 
And I can remember the next morning, it was very, very foggy morning, and I went in to get supplies, and the first thing I saw was a PI, and on the front page of the PI was a Wells Caught and Bud Inlet, and we knew that we had our hands full at that point. Washington State sued SeaWorld in federal court. The whales were eventually released, and Puget Sound became the unofficial sanctuary for the orca. Ralph Monroe went on to become an anti-whaling activist. He now chairs the Orca Conservancy, which opposes keeping orcas in captivity. I kind of compare these uh, these marine aquariums to the uh, that have whales to the old uh, home zoos along the highway. You know, I, I remember driving, to, you know, anywhere in Washington State, you could come across a home zoo and go in and see the strange animals. Well, the public got out sick of it. They just went past it by. And I think that uh, this is a different era we live in now. People want to come here and see the animals in the wild. They want to protect them. Jeff Foster continued to collect orcas in Iceland for SeaWorld. This summer, he helped in the capture and release of the orphan orca Springer in Puget Sound. Buster maintains there's great educational value in captivity. He holds deep respect for Ted Griffin, the man who started it all. I think Ted did more for whales and killer whales specifically than any person has before or since. You know, one action of him swimming with the whale and people realizing that, that th these animals weren't life-threatening and that you could develop a bond with them. And, and I truly believe that Ted's, you know, did something that no person has ever done since or before. Griffin says people continue to demand an apology from him and others who rode the bow of the capture era. More than 60 orcas were taken from Northwest Waters. Only two survived today in captivity. Still, Griffin says he has no regrets. I did retire, but I would not take back one thing that I did. I don't believe that I did wrong. And I don't justify it by saying that nobody knew better at the time or anything else. I justify it by saying that this was a phenomenal chance, an opportunity to become acquainted with a, a brilliant, intelligent creature in a up-close and personal way that had never been done before. I take back nothing. I do not have any regrets. And I would never have missed the experience for anything. But Namu, he did save Big Joe from the waves, and the whale heard the great ocean call. Then everybody knew that the killer whale, Namu, he wasn't a killer at all. Next on Orca Odyssey, the capture era gives way to research and conservation. Stay with us. Support for KUOW comes from EnviroStars, a local county government program certifying businesses for their efforts to protect the environment by preventing pollution and reducing hazardous waste. A listing of EnviroStars certified businesses is online at EnviroStars.org. I'm Dave Beck. The award-winning Finnish conductor, composer, and pianist Rolf Gatoni is the new music director and principal conductor of the Seattle's Northwest Chamber Orchestra. We'll meet him, and we'll get live music from blues musician Alice Stewart. It's all on the beat this afternoon at 2 on KUOW 94.9.
Welcome back to Orca Odyssey. I'm Kathy Ducham. Ted Griffin's quest to tame a wild whale gave way in the 1970s to a different journey, a drive to understand how orcas live in the wild in order to protect them. The Tlingit tribe of southeast Alaska has been on this quest to understand the killer whale for as long as anyone can remember. Tlingit storyteller Gene Tagabin tells the tale of one boy who went to live with the orcas, called Keat, after his father, the clan leader, captured one to keep as a slave. One day, long ago, a hunter from a village runs back to the village. We have found a whale. It is Keat. It is Keat just outside the village. All the people excited to see. See this whale that they have found, for Keat is one of the strongest beings, one of the most respected beings of the sea, of all things. The leader of the people, he steps forward. He has just been appointed chief, and he wants to make an impression on his people. We will keep this whale, he says. This whale, he will hunt for us, work for us. He will fight for us. We will be the strongest village all around. It is a young boy, the leader's son. He steps forward. This boy, wise beyond his years. Let him go, let him go. But nobody listens. He is our brother. Nobody listens. He is our family. Still nobody listens. All too busy looking at this prize that they have caught. And it is a young boy, he steps forward. Again to the beach. And he asked for forgiveness from the whale. Please for forgive us for what we have done. Forgive us. And he sings a song. song of forgiveness. The young boy asked the whales, take me. Take me in replace of your son. Take me. A black canoe comes forward. The young boy steps into it and drifts off to sea. That young boy, he found himself in the village of the Keat. All the people, they all worked together. Those whales, they had families, they had uncles, aunties, grandparents. They had their own songs and dances. They told stories. They told stories of their travels and their adventures. They watched over the waters. They only took what they needed. They were respected. In the San Juan Islands of Washington State, scientists have confirmed what the Clinket boy observed. The essence in, in the killer whale society is their togetherness. They have no den, they have no nest, their togetherness is their home. They are the top predator and at the same time they are capable of such enormous bonding, friendship, 
gentle, subtle, loving play, and they are very intelligent. Dutch scientist Astrid van Ginniken is co-principal investigator with the Center for Whale Research based on Samhain Island. Oh, wow, that's my favorite whale. I can't miss him. <laughs> Every summer, van Ginniken and other scientists, plus a team of volunteers, fly the waters on a 38-foot trimaran called High Spirits to study the group of whales that summer in the waters between Washington and Canada. Van Ginniken works with whale biologist Ken Balcom, who founded the center in 1976. This day, with high winds and choppy seas, he's smart enough to count whales from shore. Not really work. It's uh, my passion and reason for being. Humans are pretty much dominating everything right now. And I think it's useful to pay attention to some of the other creatures and how they're faring. It's just such a beautiful sound to hear in the morning. <laughs> Balcom was hired by the state of Washington 26 years ago to count the number of orcas in local waters to determine how many could be taken for aquariums. But how do you count animals that swim in the vast North Pacific? Balcom consulted with a Canadian scientist named Mike Big, who said he counted whales off Vancouver Island by taking pictures of them. Balcom was skeptical. He says in the 1970s, the idea that you could tell individual whales apart was lunatic. Big proved the scientific establishment wrong. Balcom says the breakthrough came when Big compared photos he took of orcas in 1973 and 74. And he said, oh, well, this is the same, has the same neck as the one last year, and that one has the same bent over fin. And he went all the way around Vancouver Island and photographed every whale. At the north end, he started with what he called A group, the first bunch, A1, A2, A3, numbered them, and B, C, and so on, until JKL down here. And then uh, ran out of alphabet and basically had identified everybody. So we came along and uh, basically duplicated his techniques and found the same whales. We could talk to him over the phone. He could describe the pictures to us. <laughs> so that was like, okay, Mike, I believe you now. Uh, and by 1982, we convinced the scientific community that we could tell them all apart. And now it's a study technique all around the world. A technique that's turned Belcom's basement into a documentary library. This is the ID room, we call it. We used to take about 17,000 pictures a year. So we've got this vault full of negatives that are uh, in a fireproof storage. And then we have all the catalogs from every year. So from 76 through 2002, beginning here. Balcom has a photo of every individual whale organized by family tree. Like J1, J2, J8, J11, they're on this page. And we can look back in our very first catalog. You see J1. He was an adult male in 1976. He's still here. He's one of the oldest males in the population and one of the largest as well. Is he the guy with the six-foot dorsal fin? I don't think anybody's been standing on his back okay. to measure it, but uh, my guess is that it's at least six feet tall. 
with an understanding of whales as individuals come stories. Back aboard High Spirits, Astrid Van Ginniken takes a break from snapping pictures for a story about a nighttime encounter with her favorite orca. Her eyes grow big as she describes the phosphorescent water that twinkled in the darkness. We were just listening. I said, I hear a male. And suddenly, Daryl Zill 57 with his, his big dorsal thing towering above us because you were very low in the water and inflatable. As he went down, he lit up all green. And you could see him entirely. His head was green, his specs, his dorsal fin, his flukes, everything. So here you see all this entire whale as a green lamp guiding us on the water. We saw his flukes undulate with green swirls coming off of the tips, coming off the tip of the dorsal fin. You could see coming up, coming up, coming up, then breaking the surface. You know, and then again, all green. And he just guided us. We just followed him underwater, the green lamp. And then we slowed down and let him go because it was his gift. It was beautiful. Through the work of Van Ginniken, Ken Balcom, Mike Big, and others, we now know there are fish-eating types of orcas, the residents, and mammal-eating types, the transients. We also know that orcas live in matrilineal groups. Females lead the hunts and care for the young. Perhaps the most startling discovery made on the quest to understand the orca happened underwater. People are fascinated by them because of the very complex intelligent animals that we now know them to be. For example, acoustically, they surpass pretty much any other non-human mammal. Canadian marine mammal scientist John Ford was not the first person to drop a microphone underwater to record the whales, but he is credited with discovering orca dialects, which he demonstrates in his lab in the Vancouver Island city of Nanaimo. And so I could play first one of the, an example of the A-pods. This is the one that uh, many people are familiar with. It's uh, the group that includes Springer. Ford's big aha happened in 1978 when he compared recordings of orcas off northern Vancouver Island with whales that lived further south near the San Juan Islands. That was really a striking moment when that first day when I went out and put the hydrophone down with JK and L-Pods, they were all together, the southern residents off the mouth of the Fraser. And I couldn't believe what I was listening to, that they could be so dramatically different in their sounds. Uh, I just really wasn't prepared for that. So I realized that something very unusual was going on here. This, this couldn't be. The, these were sounding like different species. At this point, Ford was on a mission. He set out to record and analyze the sounds of all 19 resident pods. He spent years in the lab. He generated thousands of spectrograms of whale calls. The research is part of a growing body of evidence that whales learn through speech and pass on behaviors from one generation to the next. In the process of growing up in the pod, they seem to acquire, it seems through vocal learning, the repertoire of the group, of its mother or grandmother. 
So it seems that these, these are basically vocal traditions that are passed on from generation to generation. Very unusual. So we're talking about a culture here. Very much so. It is a culture. It's, of course, not a material culture. It's a behavioral culture. And the dialects, are, I think, are one of the best examples of the culture. There's other kinds of traditions, no doubt. Uh, another example would be the beach rubbing traditions. Whenever the whales are in an area, they will make a beeline at certain times to rub on certain beaches. No doubt, individuals learn where those beaches are, just as they learn what time of year to go into what inlet to intercept a particular run of salmon. And I think this is why the the animals live in these long-term pods where individuals stay in the group and benefit from these foraging traditions that might have evolved over many, many generations. Based on the research of Ford and other scientists, there has been a push to protect orcas worldwide. In the decades following the capture ban in the Pacific Northwest, the whale population grew. But now, the whales are dying. At last count, the number of southern residents was 78, down from a high of 97 in 1996. Ken Balcom says there's a possibility the orcas may disappear from Washington waters altogether. And we're now at the point where uh, we can show you the major line maps. You've got maybe 21 females that could produce babies, and that's the future of this population. You've got four major lines that are just dead ends. They're not going to be anymore. There are no females in it, or no productive ones. You, know, you could take the Smiths and the Jones and the Browns and the Balcoms. They're gone. You know, and then you have all the rest of the phone book. They're there, 21 others, but how long are they going to be there? Coming up next on Orca Odyssey, a look at what may be causing orca deaths and an attempt to save just one, the orphan Springer. Stay with us. Support for KUOW comes from University Audi, offering the new Audi with Quattro all-wheel drive and Audi certified pre-owned cars, loaner cars, shuttle service, and other benefits. University Audi, corner of 47th and Roosevelt in Seattle's University District, a Seattle Audi dealer for over 30 years, home of passport service. The Orca, once feared, now loved. When you are looked at by a whale, you're thunderstruck changed for life. That from the man who rode the first killer whale in captivity in Seattle. Join us for Orca Odyssey on Radio Intersection tonight at 9.30 on KUOW 94.9, NPR News and Information. This is Orca Odyssey. I'm Kathy Duchamp. The capture of orcas in Puget Sound ended in 1976. In the years that followed, scientists saw the whale population grow. It seemed the animals had bounced back after more than 60 young orcas were shipped to aquariums around the world. But in the 1990s, something happened. 
Scientist Astrid Van Ginniken saw it firsthand from the deck of the trimaran High Spirits. She recalls what she saw during a photo ID survey with the Center for Whale Research. In 1994, suddenly we began to see these sick whales, you know, wasting away like L42. You saw his neck was all sunken, you saw his rib cage. Every time he came up, his dorsal fin just flopped over 45 degrees. And then on uh, September 10, I saw my favorite K-17. He was bad and his fin was leaning a bit. He was inseparable with his family. And then the next day, we found his family and he was not there. So that was, I was so sad. The southern resident population has dropped 20% in the last seven years. Government scientists say they don't know why, but some factors are obvious. Food supply, in this case salmon, has dwindled. And says Van Ginniken, the orcas pick up toxins from what food they can find. We have found these high PCB levels. And the problem is that when your food reserves wear out, yeah, or you, then you have to burn your fat. And the PCBs are fat-soluble compound. So then they uh, mobilize that in the bloodstream. And that uh, has a negative impact on the immune system and also reproduction. So I think that probably the combination of not being able to feed well, plus the PCBs, probably were the reason for this relatively sharp decline. Boat noise is also a concern. The sounds of chugging engines fill the underwater canyons of Johnstone Strait off northern Vancouver Island. The orcas are here swimming alongside commercial trawlers, speedboats and whale watch boats. Canadian scientist John Ford says boat traffic has increased dramatically since he first stuck his hydrophone in the water in 1978. When I'm trying to make underwater recordings, it's very, very difficult now compared to in the old days. It's not just the whale watch operators, it's commercial traffic of all types. It's the cruise ships going through the area. It's just the general increase in boating traffic that we can only expect as the local waters become more urbanized. You know, you see projections of what the human population is going to be like 20 years from now in this area, and it's kind of scary. And one has to wonder if there's going to be room for these whales down the road, you know, if, if everybody's going to be out there in their boats zooming around. It's not going to be a very um, palatable kind of habitat for these animals. Last year, the Canadian government listed resident killer whales as endangered. This summer, the U.S. government declined to do so. It says there's not enough evidence to show the southern residents are a distinct population at risk. The decision was a disappointment for conservationists who are now battling the National Marine Fisheries Service in the courts. Ken Balcom is the founder of the Center for Whale Research. Looking out over Harrow Strait, the summer home of the southern residents, Belcom says what surprises him most is that the orcas are still here. Because we've abused the heck out of them. You know, I, I would think that if you took a population of hominids, peoples, and uh, captured them for slavery, shot them, poisoned them, they would have moved by now. I don't think these guys really have that option. I think that they are pretty tied to the prey resources of this region. And there's other neighborhoods that are already occupied. You know, they can't just move out there without having some sort of interaction or perhaps even conflict with neighbors that they long ago had treaties with. But there's one whale that did cross treaty lines. 
the orphan orca nicknamed Springer. Springer, known to scientists as A73, is a member of the Northern Resident Group. Springer swam south from Canada to Seattle last winter after its mother died, an unprecedented move that scientists don't really understand. The whale became friendly with boaters and ferries that run between Seattle and Vashon Island. There were fears it would get caught by a propeller, or worse. Health-wise, Springer didn't look good. The water it took up residence in is a hot spot for PCBs. And so for the first time ever, scientists decided to capture the orca and return it to its pod in Canada. The capture was considered high risk. There were concerns that Springer might die from stress. Okay, we got to slide that around her pack. Marine mammal handler Jeff Foster tied the rope around Springer's tail. The same Jeff Foster who was out on Bud Inlet in 1976 for the notorious last roundup. Well, we've kind of come full circle, and it's it's been interesting. We've learned a tremendous amount about these animals in the last 30 years. And, and in 1976, I, I got awarded one of the biggest assholes of the bicentennial year by Greenpeace, so it was come full circle, too. Springer was nervous and confused at first, but later calmed down. For Foster, who reintroduced the killer whale Keiko to the waters off Iceland, this capture was easy. It was a piece of cake because I'm used to dealing with these animals up in the North Atlantic in the wintertime. So being out there on a sunny day and 90 degrees and having the support that we did through the vessels and everything else went very well. Springer was placed in a sling and then transported via high-speed catamaran 340 miles north to British Columbia and a net pen off Hanson Island in Johnstone Strait. The whale was greeted by members of the Namgi First Nation, paddled to the net pen in canoes. The next day, orcas from Springer's Pod were seen at the edge of the bay. Foster and crew got the order to set Springer free. Got it, drop the net, open it up. The team guided the whale out of the net pen. Push under. No, go ahead. Springer swam free. Yes! Well-wishers cheered as Springer swam toward her pod. A happy family reunion, or so it seemed. This is the instant after she, the, the net was dropped and she, she's coming out. John Fort recorded underwater sounds of the release. She was clearly excited, there's no question of that. But Springer's pod wasn't excited. The five or so whales at the edge of the bay stayed silent. They seemed to be totally underwhelmed by the whole thing. They just carried on and of course, A73, she just took off to the nearest bit of kelp and played with that. She seemed to not really be all that interested in them. In the coming days, scientists cringed as Springer swam between her pod and fishing boats. The release team headed home. 
The person left to babysit Springer was Paul Spong, who runs a research station on Hanson Island called Orca Lab. In the living room of his cabin, perched on a rocky shore, the native New Zealander listens for whales. He does it through a network of hydrophones that cover 30 square miles of habitat. Are these on 24-7? Do you ever turn these off? Oh the no, hydro? we listen to them all the time. The hope is that we've trained our brains well enough to wake up when orca sounds are there and to sleep through boat noise. Three days after Springer's release, Spong says A-73 was swimming with three other orphan orcas, including a whale called A-51. They were together for quite some time in the midst of this other huge group of whales. When they were leaving, uh, it looked at one point as though Springer was attracted by a boat, and she started to head off towards it. And then A-51 went partway over to her, so she was calling her back, and Springer went back and joined back up with them. So I took that as being a very good indication that she's perhaps getting it together and, and would be more focused on whales than people. Spong heard the Springer story unfold through the hydrophones, but he also saw it on his computer. Oh, look at them. A, those are the A-12s going by Craycroft Point right now. Actually, 40 seconds ago, but <laughs> close enough. <laughs> As a way to inspire people to work harder to save orca habitat, Spong started a website called orcalive.net. Yes, orca-live. Got to put the hyphen in there. <laughs> <laughs> With a grant from a Japanese company and help from his daughter Anna, who shoots the live pictures, Spong shares the whales with the world. I'm going to send an alert email because there are orcas close to Craycroft Point and Anna's filming them and uh, people can see them live. And it's going to be a very exciting day after, after a while around here if they keep going, which they probably will. Orcalive.net is an extension of Spong's philosophy that it's possible to study wild orcas without interfering with their lives or habitat. People need nature, and nature needs people. But you can't put everybody into nature because you destroy it. So that's part of the idea that you can use technology to provide experiences for people that will be profound enough to influence their lives without having to actually take them there. At 63, Spong has spent more than half his life listening to whales. With the release of Springer, a region that used to shoot and later capture whales for aquariums has now embraced the idea of keeping them wild. I asked Spong if we've come full circle. I'd love to say that, but unfortunately it's not the case. Right at this moment, there are Russian orca captors at work in the Okhotsk Sea getting ready to capture orcas for the Japanese aquarium industry. I believe they have a contract. The price is a million dollars a piece, and it's almost certain to happen, regardless of the fact uh, that there is already a vocal opposition to it that comes from the scientific community. So no, I'm sorry, Kathy, we are not through this phase. In most of the world, orcas are no longer captured for aquariums, but threats induced by people remain. Toxins in the water, noise from boat traffic, and a dwindling supply of wild salmon. 
for now we find solace in reuniting one orca with its pod. Much like the Tlingit clan leader who releases the whale he's held captive, Tlingit storyteller Gene Tagaben. The father of this boy, he sat on the edge of the pool, still staring at what he has caught, watching this young whale and knowing that his family was off in the distance in the waters, never leaving its side. This man, the leader, his heart grew heavy with grief, missing his son and knowing that the family of this whale was missing him too. So when that tide came up, the tide came up high enough that man, the leader, set him free. You are free. Go. Live with your family. Be with your family. Be with your family. How long was it? I don't know. How long was it until the young boy came home? He was a young man. He came back home to his father, to his people. He came back home and he told them. He told them what he had seen. He told them where he had been. I've been living with the Keet, he says. They are my family now. We've traveled many distances. We live in great villages. We see you often out there fishing. And we bring you the fish. We bring you the seal and the sea lion. We watch after you. The young man's father, glad to see him. He's strong. He's been raised well. He knows that he won't stay. He knows where his spirit is. His spirit is there with the keet. The young man returns back to them, walking to the ocean, walking to the waters. They say if you see him, it's good luck. He gave up himself to the whale. It's good luck when you see him riding on the back, riding on the back of the keet of the killer whale. Odyssey was written and produced by Kathy Ducham. The editor was Guy Nelson. Orca Sounds provided by John Ford and Ken Balcom. Sounds of the capture and release of Springer provided by the National Marine Fisheries Service and CBC. Additional mixing by Guy Nelson. Music provided by Gene Tagabin, the Dorsals and the Gatorman, Tom Glazer, and the Rachels, who also produced this song, 
You can find the Rachels on the Quarter Stick Records label. Orca Odyssey is a production of KUOW 94.9 Seattle, NPR News and Information, which is solely responsible for its content. KUOW Program Director is Jeff Hansen. For more information, visit our website, www.kuow.org. Good morning. This is Weekday on KUOW Seattle. I'm Guy Nelson in for Steve Scher. And you just heard a remarkable story about orcas and how our attitudes have changed about them over the years in the last few decades. And joining me in the studio now for a couple minutes to talk about that is Kathy Ducham, KUW's reporter, who put together that entire documentary. Thanks for coming in, Kathy. Thanks for having me, Guy, and thanks for your help in editing the piece. Well, I... I added a little bit here and there, but I have to say I commend you for a thorough job. Very well done. Thanks. And we're very proud of that. In the couple minutes that we have left, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this piece came together? And we know that you were covering the uh, the dramatic and exciting story of Springer's rescue. But then at some point you realized that there was much more to it than that, a bigger story that had never really been told. Right. Never really. It had been told in, in pieces here and there and in newspaper articles especially, but never really kind of the odyssey, the journey that people have been on with these whales. It really happened at a press conference over at the National Marine Fishery Service headquarters at Sandpoint, um, talking when the f- game plan for the Springer capture was laid out. And I went up to Bob Long, who's in charge of nymphs here locally, and said, um, so who's going to capture the whale? And he said, well, actually, there are people locally here who captured whales for aquariums in the 60s and they're still around so we'll probably recruit them and I thought wow that's kind of interesting maybe I'll do a profile story of one of those guys and and then some other scientists said you know Ted Griffin the guy who captured the first killer whale for captivity wrote it in captivity he lives in Bellevue you can find him in the phone book and I just thought wow you know these people are still living we can find them you know, this has a story with a compelling beginning and a, and a very interesting end as we find ourselves here today. Well, thank you very much for the work. And if anyone missed part of the story, you can hear it all on our website, KUOW.org. Uh, KUOW's Kathy Duchamp, thanks again for coming thanks. in. Thanks. This is Weekday on KUOW Seattle. And started to move when I moved Oh, well, he started to move About three knots at a time Yeah, Namu swam along Away in his prime One swinging wheel at the end of the line For ten days and nights Namu was feeling fine Namu KUOW comes from EnviroStars, a local county government program certifying businesses for their efforts to protect the environment by preventing pollution and reducing hazardous waste. A listing of EnviroStars certified businesses is online at EnviroStars.org.
Weekday is produced by Arvid Hokanson. Dylan Blaylock is our associate producer. We get help from Allison Chapin and John Duffel. I'm your host, Guy Nelson, sitting in for Steve Scher. Thanks for listening to Weekday on KUOW and Northwest Public Radio. 9.59 is the time. Let's see how the roads are doing. A couple of big backups still. Northbound 405 between Renton and Bellevue is one. Northbound I-5 between the West Seattle Bridge and the 520 interchange is another. And eastbound 520 still stop and go-ish. I-5 out to the water. I'm Sarah Johnson for KUOW. Thanks, Sarah. The check of traffic is from Hankook Tire America. And by the way, you can hear more of Kathy Duchamp's documentary on orcas tonight at 9.30. There's a half an hour version that we're going to broadcast. And the piece may not quite yet be on our website, but it will be shortly. So you can find it later today at KUOW.org. I'm Dave Beck. The award-winning Finnish conductor, composer, and pianist Ralph Gattoni is the new music director and principal conductor of Seattle's Northwest Chamber Orchestra. We'll meet him, and we'll get live music from blues musician Alice Stewart. It's all on the beat this afternoon at 2 on KUOW 94.9. It's 10 o'clock. This is weekday on KUOW. I'm Guy Nelson in for Steve Scher. In the next hour, we're going to continue our look at Northwest Wales with Seattle writer Brenda Peterson. She's been following gray whales and their migration between Alaska and Mexico and has a new book. We'll find out about the quiet lagoon in Baja, Mexico, where the gray whales birth their calves, how they fend off attacks by packs of orcas, and we'll look at the mysterious die-off of gray whales that's been happening over the last few years. Are the whales undernourished, or are they suffering from some buildup of toxic pollution? Also, we'll check in with the situation with the Macaw tribe and find out about their whaling rights and whether or not they will continue. All with Seattle author Brenda Peterson, who is our guest, as we talk about the mysterious journey of gray whales coming up on weekday after this news. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Ann Bozell. The White